Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the, this privilege and this honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the completed canon. Thank you for loving us and showing us your grace. And thank you for giving us faith that saves even. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this one even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <coughs> that one, this one's not on, right? That thing seems, does that seem loud to you? The AC? It's good? Or is it loud, Billy? You can shut it off if you want. There's no reason to have it on. It wasn't on when we got here. I'm so glad we're taping this, too. Anyways, the difficult passages, um, believing. Turn your Bibles. Let's start this way. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Believing. Believe it or not, no pun intended, um, this is a critical message uh, that you all need to really take seriously. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. For years, I thought that was for believers. Now I'm absolutely 100% convinced it's a distinction. It's Paul saying, make sure you are actually saved, lest you fail the test. So we're going to get into this idea of saving faith based on believing as it is described in the Bible. In the Bible. Tonight's a critical message for a number of reasons not the least of which has to do with the gospel, but more specifically, continuing to learn to read our Bibles for context. For context. I believe a lot of people to this day refuse to read their Bibles regularly, even. And I'm talking about Christianity in general. Yet, these same people insist that they are saved because they believed in something. But I believed. Even if they've never actually received saving faith. Let me give you a, a quote from uh, Mr. John Calvin on human beliefs as relating to true saving faith. The human heart has so many recesses for vanity, so many lurking places for falsehood, is so shrouded by fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. Jesus had something to say about the human heart. Go to John 2.23. He's really going to set this lesson up for us this evening. And it makes sense, too, because we're going to spend most of our time in the Gospels. Again, the human heart is so many recesses for vanity, so many lurking places for falsehood, is so shrouded by fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. Thank you, John Calvin, for that. Jesus had something to say about the human heart. Look at verse 23 of John 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed. Pistuo, or pestilo, oh, oh. You try saying it three times fast. Believed in his name, and most of you know, pistis is the same word that we use for faith. So these are close, okay? Pistouo, in his name, um, observing his signs, which he was doing. So do not forget the context, okay? Do not forget the context. During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Up here on the board, to get us situated from pistouo, believe Believe, have faith in, trust in, that's uh, from Strong's. I am entrusted with, in context, everyone believes something, and everyone has faith. 
in something. Whether it's godly is another issue altogether. Just because you see the word believe in the Bible, just because the Greek word pistouo, or just because the Greek word pistis is actually in the original language, does not mean it's always the same thing. It does not mean that it's always godly. You have to check on, guess what? You ready? Starts with a C. Context. You have to check the context to figure out what does it mean. I love, really, what? I love my bird's bees. I love, what? My son, Joey. You think I, you think I love my bird's bees more than Joey? Okay, Sean. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Unless there's a context for the word love, you don't know. The only way you're going to understand that thing is if you understand the context. Amen? Well, do you think the Bible's any different? No. Not at all. Everyone believes something and everyone has faith in something. Whether it's godly is another issue altogether. Again, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Now, look at Jesus' own response to the context of the scene. And mind you, the context says they were observing his signs, which he was doing. He knew what was going on. He knew what people were professing. The Bible is chock full, as is life, of those instances where people, quote, believe in something fiercely, even emotionally. And some of you can relate to this, even in a religious sense. At one point in your life, you believed something fiercely enough that you used to maybe even belittle others. You used to even maybe put them down or attack them and say, no way, that's so lost. And now you're like, oh, wow. But did you not believe at the time? You sure did. So life is full of these situations where we believe something fiercely, even emotionally, and then at some later date, we have an even greater repulsion for the very thing that we've proclaimed to believe in the first place. The Bible says that if a person's belief results in godly faith, that will never happen. If a person's belief results in godly faith, we will never be repulsed by what we actually believe. It'll never happen. We'll get to that in a moment. Up here on the board to get us situated. Not all believing is the same then. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all believing is godly. Just because a Greek word shows up doesn't mean that the writer was talking about something godly. Nowhere in the Bible does it state that all believing is godly. In fact, the Bible depicts man's heart as utterly deceitful. To the idolater, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 44.20 up here, he feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? A deceived heart turned him aside. The prophet Jeremiah wrote more theologically up here on the board, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean... Who can understand why someone would believe in Allah and then fly a plane into a building? Who can understand these things? They have faith, right? They believe in something, right? Fierce enough to kill themselves for it and kill others in the process. Jesus never lied to himself. That's why I took you to John 2. Jesus never lied to himself about the heart of man. What he did do, though, you ready? This is what's awesome for us even now. What he did do is look for true signs of saving faith that come as a result of godly believing. That is our context, my friends, as we embark on the so-called difficult passages concerning believing in the Bible. Again, Jesus sets the stage for us. Let's read it again. Verse 23, 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not what? Entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, later on, Jesus put his thoughts on full display with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the so-called knowledgeable group, certainly believed in something, correct? Indeed. It was actually, you know, the first books in the Bible. They believed in the words. They had the, the knowledge of the words. They believed that, you know, God sent these things down. So they were the knowledgeable group, and they certainly believed in something. Go to John 8, 12. John 8, 12. So we're going to embark on a wonderful journey that the Spirit took me on, uh, even this morning. John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. I didn't say that. That's not Pastor Ed's words. That's Jesus' words. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Up here on the board, to help drive this home some more, it matters what you believe. It matters what you believe. Jesus stated that those who believed in him, true believers, would walk in the light. John 8, 12. We just saw that in 1 John 1, 6-7. It matters what you believe. Jesus stated that those who believed in him, true believers, would walk in the light. Up here on the board, 1 John 6-7, the Apostle John said, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, look at verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And don't, please don't get me into the whole present tense, active. We, I've taught you that many, many times in the Greek. It means a lifestyle, a habit, something that, let's use the word persists, okay? Something that persists. Now, don't ask me to put some measure on it, because I'm not God. Don't say, well, it's got to be at least 3% or above, or it's got to be 50% or above. Let's not do that. Let's just take theology the way it's stated in Scripture, and let God the Holy Spirit convict you in your own life. How about that? I'm not interested in trying to decide on people's salvation. I'm only interested in teaching what Scripture has to say, truly has to say, without abandon, without apology. If this is what it says, guess what, my friends? This is what it says. Verse 13, So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Uh-oh. So in other words, the Pharisees were saying that what Jesus believed was wrong. They said, this is what we believe. We believe you're wrong. And Jesus is like, well, I'm on the authority of God, and you're wrong. They both believed in something. That's fair. But the Pharisees were saying that Jesus, what Jesus believed was wrong. They knew, as Jesus did, that both parties believed something, but one had to be wrong, given the polarity of their beliefs. Verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. What I believe is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. In other words, your belief is actually based on judgment of what? Coming from the flesh. There is a hope. I mean, the flesh believes things. Fleshly people, unsaved people, do they not believe things? Up here on the board. Judging according to the flesh. 
Jesus stated the root of the Pharisees' belief, the flesh. The Bible says the flesh cannot be godly. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. Spiritually appraised things, the, you know, the natural man, etc., etc. The Bible says the flesh cannot be godly. In fact, it cannot even appraise its own depravity. It doesn't suppose it's actually depraved even. <laughs> That's the problem. Isn't that what we've been learning with the gospel messages? The person has to actually realize, admit, be humbled by the fact that they're totally depraved. But the flesh won't do that thing. So in fact, it cannot even appraise its own depravity. It doesn't suppose it's actually depraved even. Does that not sound like the Pharisees? Jesus called them a brood of vipers. Not a big fan. Why? Because they judged according to the flesh. Their belief was fleshly. This doesn't mean that what an unbeliever believes is any less a type of belief in the strictest sense of the word. The supernatural results, though, are infinitely different, but both unbelievers and believers believe something. And so the Bible talks about it. In the case of the Pharisees, they judged according to the flesh, which is why Jesus said earlier in this book, up here on the board, in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You search the scriptures. You think that in your knowledge of scripture, that that's where you gain eternal life. But the scripture actually talks about me. You're supposed to believe in me. Again, verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. In other words, what I believe is true, said Jesus. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Up here on the board. The Pharisees' belief. The Pharisees certainly believed in something, and it was based on the same word, the same law, that Jesus based his personal belief on. Jesus never said the law was wrong. Matter of fact, the Bible says the law was perfect. It's just that man could never measure up except one. While the vehicle for true faith, the word, was the same, not all were, quote, unquote, on the train towards salvation. But they certainly did believe in something. And the Bible depicts them that way. Let's jump a little bit. Go to verse 23. Verse 23. And he was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe, you want to know what Greek word that is again? Pistouo. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Remember, they were the ones who were looking at Scripture but didn't recognize the Messiah. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Up here on the board, unless you believe that I am he, remember there's the qualifying statement, not just believe anything, not just believe facts, not just believe scripture, not try to find eternal life in scripture, but actually look for the Messiah, believe that he was the Messiah, a person. Unless you believe that I am he. Jesus made the absolute distinction that belief must be in his person, quote, that I am he. He wasn't refuting knowledge of scripture. He was explaining the chasm between knowing of him and actually knowing him. They are in, literally infinitely apart from each other. Even the demons know and shudder. Even unbelievers who have rejected the gospel know about Jesus Christ, 
But they don't know God. God doesn't quote, as the Bible says, know them. Why? Because they haven't had the actual correct belief in the first place. A belief that precipitates, if you would, saving faith. Now's about the time to drive a huge principle home that the Spirit's been sort of, I was thinking about kneading bread, you know, just sort of kneading it in our souls every so often, just sort of working this thing into our souls, just sort of working it into our souls for about a year now, up here on the board. Believing in the Bible, I don't mean believing in the Bible, I mean believing as it is in the Bible, the concept. Just because the word believe or its derivatives shows up in Scripture does not mean all believing is the same. To the contrary, Scripture contextualizes different beliefs, of which two categories arise. It's that simple. Belief in Jesus Christ or some other belief, a.k.a. unbelief in Him. The facts, for example, the facts are His offices only. Again, just because the word believe or its derivative shows up in the Scripture does not mean all believing is the same. To the contrary, Scripture contextualizes different beliefs of which two categories arise, belief in Jesus Christ or any other thing. So let's continue in this tremendously telling passage that we're on, and I wholeheartedly suggest you reread this chapter at home before bed tonight. And really focus on the context. It's really, really important that you never lose sight of the context. Okay, look at verse 30 now. <clears throat> As he spoke these things, many came to believe. There it is again in him. Now, here's the thing. If you make the mistake of using a word study type approach here, because it's pista uo again, like many seem to do nowadays, instead of reading the entire context of the passage, you might begin your journey towards errant doctrines that will ultimately misshape the gospel itself. In other words, never read a faith or a believing passage or verse out of context. Always keep it in context. Remember from our previous topic, the gospel context up here on the board, the value of context. Without the gospel context, the rest of Scripture becomes difficult, quote-unquote, to understand, often confusing, and as a result, frustrating. Satan loves it when a, quote, well-intentioned believer puts their Bible aside in frustration. I'm encouraging you, I'm telling you from personal experience, the more you learn to read for context, the easier this gets. Honest to goodness. Don't just pluck verses out, your favorite little, you know, quips. That kind of a thing. Read for context. It's really important. Let's read verse 30 again. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now stop. If you were to take this one verse out of context, you might be inclined to believe that Many, as it's stated here, are all saved. However, let me show you something up here on the board. John 8:30 and on. The greater context of Jesus Christ's own thoughts about the heart of man regarding his ability to believe, a la John 2:23 to 24, implies that we must press on in this passage for additional, qualifying, clarifying, context. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean when these people believed in him? Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Have you not met a person that said at some point in their life, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then later on completely denounced them? Have you not met at least one person like that in your life? How could that possibly believe? How can that possibly be? Because there are different kinds of beliefs, my friends. Is there a type of test, then, that Jesus places before these professing believers? Is there a type of test 
Well, let's see. Look at verse 31. And I'm not saying that the people in view here are unsaved either. It's not for me to decide. I'm saying that Jesus had a very healthy respect for man's heart or lack of. Let's put it that way. Look at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had pistouo, believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Oh, you mean there's like something after this? There's something I should look for? There's something that should be seen? If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So Jesus Christ says, stop the presses, my friends. Seen it before. Been there, done it. A lot of people say, Lord, Lord. And I never knew him. Hmm. Up here on the board. So Jesus Christ, believe it or not, was never afraid to say, there's going to be evidence. Come on. And people are weird because... Um, <laughs> you believe in grace, then you believe in grace. If you think that God can save you, then you have to understand, as I've taught, that he will sanctify you, you know, just like he promised. He's not going to do one without the other. There is a distinction, but they're, they come, they're one and the same, as I've taught you. God doesn't screw up and sanctify some and not others. So there's going to be evidence Freedom through persistence. Jesus stated that a true believer in Christ would continue in his word and be set free. Did I say that? No. Jesus Christ said that. If, if you continue in my word, if you persist, not only that, you'll know because you'll have a sense of freedom. There's a lot of professing believers out there that aren't free at all. They're totally in bondage. They may not say they're in bondage, but they're completely in bondage to the world. Why? Because their heart was never changed. At one point, they had some kind of emotional version of believing. Can that happen? Have you ever said to yourself, you know, I used to believe that. You know, I used to believe you. And then you turn out to be a jerk. Now I know better. Now I don't believe you at all. That never happened to anybody? Jesus stated that a true believer in Christ would continue in his word and be set free. This is the very same thread that the Spirit's been weaving through our lessons now for quite some time. It's the same one that has been dropped. It's the same one that has been dropped by the average evangelist today who's preaching some different gospel from a different spirit regarding another Jesus. Sound familiar? 2 Corinthians 11.4. Interestingly enough, um, I was reading a, a book this afternoon, or this morning, and uh, let's see, A.W. Pink was in there, Calvin was in there, um, Spurgeon was in there, Martin Luther was in there, J.C. Ryle was in there, if you don't know who these people are, these are like, um, for lack of a better term, these are like the great reformer type guys. These are the quote unquote, and I don't want to give them because they'd kill me if they were here, the heavy hitters, right? The ones that got it right. And you know what they were fighting, every single one of them? You know what they were fighting? The same thing I'm fighting right now. The same exact thing. Easy, believe, easy believism, a watered-down gospel, the whole nine yards. People perverting grace and turning it into antinomianism, if you don't know what that is. It means you got, now you got a license. You can do anything. God doesn't have to change you. Maybe I'll be changed. Maybe I won't. Maybe God's a liar. It's all grace. And they perverted the idea of grace. They were fighting the same thing centuries ago that I'm fighting right now 
So I challenge all of you, go back, read the guys before the last days, the later times that I've taught you about. Go back 300, 400, 500 years, let's say. What did they have to say? They said the exact same stuff I'm saying right now. They were fighting tooth and nail for the gospel. Why? Because man just wants to be appeased. Everybody wants to accommodate their friends or their family with some ridiculous gospel, a different gospel from another spirit, from a different Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said, repent. Oh, no, that's works. Just believe these facts right here. You know, pista uo, just believe these facts right here. You're good. Just believe this. Okay, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. What happened? What happened? Zero evidence of a changed individual. Zero. Some are playing, pretend, religiously. But again... Look at verse 31. Verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, uh, believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's. Look at the context. Is he ta- who's, who's antagonizing him by this point in the conversation? The Jews. The unbelieving ones at that. Look at the context. At this juncture, who's he talking to? He's saying, if you can say everything you want, but if you don't actually have persistent fruit, if you don't continue in my word, then you have no evidence. And look at how they argue. Let's, let's go. Satan's a wonderful at redirection, by the way. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, here's where Jesus uses an analogy to reveal that some will, quote, believe and yet not persist. Some will believe something, but not persist, which is evidence that they never received saving faith. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, if freedom isn't, if freedom isn't a result of what you proclaim to believe, then you aren't saved. These are Jesus' words. If the Son makes you free, you will be free. He doesn't say, I'm going to screw up and you won't have that fruit. He doesn't say, I'm going to just pretend He says, if you truly believe, if you're a true believer of mine, you will continue in my word, and you will be a true disciple of mine. And if I make you free, my friend, you will be free. You'll know it. And I'll even send a helper, 1 John 3 and 4, to prove it to you, to show you, to encourage you. In other words, freedom if freedom isn't a result of what you proclaim to believe, then you are not saved. Verse 7, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Now, do you think any believer is going to seek to kill Jesus? No. So let's look at the context even closer, please. What's he trying to say? What's he trying to say here? I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Oh, you might believe me about certain things, You might believe that I'm even sent from God because you're watching me do these miracles, right? Yeah, that's why we're talking to you. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be talking to you. We believe something about you. But they're trying to kill him because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. This is awesome. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. You know why? Because that's what Abraham did. He was saved. And guess what? He did stuff. Why? Because he was changed. He was saved. 
that's totally consistent with Scripture. And that's what he's saying. He's saying if you were actually Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham then, up here on the board. Then do them. What the Pharisees didn't comprehend was that Abraham believed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. John 5.39 and 8.56, we'll get to that in a moment. We already looked at verse 5.39. That was the one that says, you search the scriptures, but they actually talk about me. Abraham knew. (laughs) Abraham said, this is the Messiah in the scriptures. And salvation is through him. Everything else is shadow. All these sacrifices, that's all shadows. But you see, the Jews believed in the shadows, and they thought the shadows performing the shadows would be enough for God. Just read Hebrews, and you know that's not enough. He was never satisfied with the shadows. What the Pharisees didn't comprehend was that Abraham believed in Jesus Christ, and therefore he did good deeds as fruit of God-given faith. Romans 4, 3-5. Hold your thumb there. Go to Romans 4.3. Go to Romans 4.3. Don't believe me? Believe Scripture then. It's a really weird thing that people have done to grace. Um, you know, in hindsight's always 20-20, right? But it's an interesting thing what people have done to grace even. Romans 4.3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him. Now we have the correct context. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. (laughs) Excuse me. His faith, godly faith, is credited as righteousness. We know that cannot be another belief because God would never credit as righteousness. You understand? So the context says that that believing there is actually what results in saving faith. His faith, godly faith, is credited as righteousness. And that's how it went with Abraham. So Jesus back in um, John 8 was saying, okay, if you're his children then and you think you're saved, then why don't you do the deeds of Abraham? Because this is not. You're trying to kill me. Abraham would never try to kill me. Just saying. A true disciple of Jesus Christ, even at their lowest day, let's face it, suppose you're having the worst day, so you're totally saved, you know you're saved, you have the worst day, you know how it is, and you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and everything's going apart, and you are as crabby and miserable as possible, right? And you're like, oh, the next person that comes out, I'm just going to punch him, right? If Jesus Christ walked into your face, would you ever even dream of punching him? You would prostrate yourself right on the ground. An unbeliever might punch him. A person who isn't saved might punch him. Certainly wouldn't. A believer would certainly not want to kill him. Amen? All right. Go back to John 8.39. I mean, that's raw fruit, but that's fruit. I mean, he's using it. He's like, you guys are so far gone, you're trying to kill me. Because what are we even talking about here? We're arguing about you having saving faith when you're trying to kill me. When the one you cling to, Abraham, your so-called father, would never dream of doing it. Look at verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. See, they didn't comprehend what Abraham did. Verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now they were insulting Jesus. We were not born of fornication. They're saying Mary basically was a fornicator. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Look at that. If God were your father, you would love me. If God is your father, you will love Jesus. That's why as I've taught, when I taught on apostasy, a true believer can never not love Jesus. I believe that in my heart of hearts. 
I believe that to be impossible because I believe that God changes a person. Why do I believe that? Because I'm some emotional wreck? No. You know why? Because I read my Bible, and that's exactly what the Bible says. And I trust Jesus more than I trust any one of you. No offense. And if he says, if God were your father, you would love me, then I guess that stands to reason to be true. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying, he says? It is because you cannot hear my word (coughs) up here on the board. Believing implies hearing up here on the board. Matthew 13, 9 says, He who has ears, let him hear. It's impossible to believe something that results in godly faith if you can't first hear it. It's impossible to believe something that results in godly faith if you can't first hear it. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't hear my word. That's why. That's why. You don't hear what I'm saying. You want to hold on to the scripture, but the scripture talks about me. He says, you don't even hear what I'm saying. But scripture says, he who has ears. Now that leaves a big if, doesn't it? Because some don't. What did he say in Matthew 13 when he started speaking in parables and his disciples says, why are you talking in parables? He says, these are things that you're going to understand, but they won't because they don't have ears and you do. So he who has ears, let him hear. What was he saying to the Pharisees? Because you can't hear my word. That's why you don't believe in me. You believe in something, some abomination, like a lot of people do nowadays, some, some abomination of a gospel. They believe it, and Jesus is the centerpiece, and he's sitting there on a table, and he's up on a cross. Some of them, are still on, some of them have him still on the cross, and they believe all this stuff, and they do all this religious stuff, but they don't know Jesus. They just believe in some religion or some abomination of him. And then you go try to talk to them. They don't even want to hear it. Jesus was saying, I'm summarizing. I hope I don't do them injustice here, but for the sake of teaching. Jesus was essentially saying, oh, sure, you believe because you see the miracles and such that I'm doing here. But many of you don't believe in me as your Messiah. That's the problem. You believe in something, but it's not right. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me, and there's that qualifying statement again, you do not, pista uo, you do not believe me. You believe something, but you don't believe me. The Pharisees did not possess a belief in the actual truth, the truth that Abraham believed in, which was the same truth that was literally standing before them in the flesh, because Christ is grace and truth, remember, so says Scripture in John 1.14. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. This is plain speak, my friends. This is not difficult. Again, up here on the board, Matthew 13, 9 says, He who has ears, let him hear, implying some don't. It's impossible to believe something that results in godly faith if you first can't or you can't first hear it. Now, Jesus goes back to the persistence again in his word as evidence of true faith. Look at verse 51. Verse 51. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What did he say about people who continue in his word? They are his true disciples. What is he saying here? If you don't do that, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Look at verse 
56. This is why I want you to read this on your own tonight, please, for context. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. <laughs> so the guy you're clinging to believed in me, and you don't. You believe in something else, some other gospel, some other Messiah, some other way to salvation. You believe in salvation by works. You don't even believe in salvation by grace, for crying out loud. But we have the scriptures. Yeah, you do. And I know you know them. But you're blind. You're deaf. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Just to echo our previous point up here on the board again, <clears throat> then do the deeds of Abraham if you say you're from him. What the Pharisees didn't comprehend was that Abraham believed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, and therefore he did good, good deeds as fruit of God-given faith. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Can you imagine that? There's grace and truth himself standing there, taking the time to explain himself, and what do they want to do? Stone him. They want to kill him. So that is a fantastic, wonderful passage for you all to reread this evening before you go to bed, just to pull it all together in context. In context. And as you do so, please keep an eye on the contextual differences of the word believe. Believe. It's not always just because it's the same original word in context can mean vastly different things. What you'll see is what the Spirit's teaching you tonight to our previous point up here on the board. Not all believing is the same. Nowhere in the Bible does it state that all believing is godly. In fact, the Bible depicts man's heart as utterly deceitful. Now, with that fresh in our minds, as well as our lessons on the gospel context, and what's the Spirit saying here? He's saying context, context, context. This is very simple. Look at Jesus' life. What did he say? I came to seek and to save. This is what I'm about. This is what I want you to understand about me, my ministry, my commission from God the Father. This is what I want you to understand. This is the context of my gospel, my friends. We need to visit the foundational parable of all parables. But this time, Let's allow the Spirit to convict us of the truth of it based on the writing of Luke, the Gentile physician, who, by the way, would have understood the heart of Jesus, just like this up here on the board. Again, as a friendly reminder, John 2, 23-24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed, pistouo, in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Hmm. Go to Luke 8.4. Luke 8.4. You have to accept the context of Scripture. Now, historically, we've gone to Matthew 13. But Luke has a different spin. The way that he writes it, remember Matthew wrote uh, to Jewish people predominantly, Luke was a Gentile physician. Luke 8.4. <coughs> when a close crowd of disciples gathered? No. When a large crowd was coming together. Now think of the gospel context. You're the Savior. You came to seek and to save. You've got a large crowd in front of you. What do you think you're going to talk about? What's going to be your topic of discussion? It's going to be salvation. 
when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow a seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do not forget the word persistent as well, my friends. Do not forget the tie to persistence that we just studied in context. What did Jesus say in John 8? He says, if you keep my word, you are truly disciples of mine. And what you see there is some people not keeping it. Some people not persisting. And again, what's the context? The gospel. What's the context? Saving, seeking saving people. That's what he's talking about here. Other, feed, other seed fell into the soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why would he say something like that? As we just learned, some people can't hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe, there's that Greek word again, and this is why I have it deemed a, quote, difficult passage, although it's not difficult once you understand the full context of the Bible. They believe, pistauo, for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Here's Matthew's version of the, quote, rocky soil up here on the board, just for context. Again, we have three uh, Gospels that write about the same parable, of course. Here's the Matthew version, Matthew 13, 20 to 21, just that second category, the rocky soil. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Is that persistence or not persistent? That is not persistent. That is inconsistent with Jesus' own words. We just saw that in John 8. All right, hold your thumb, go to Mark 4.14. We're going to be thorough here because I don't want anybody confused about this anymore. It bothers me. I understand it, but it bothers me. Mark 4.14. <clears throat> Again, this is just the same account, the same parable, just a different writer. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Again, there's context now for hearing. Just like pistuo, not all hearing is the same. Because here we have people that hear the word and yet Satan plucks it away. What is the context? I just gave it to you. Jesus Christ is trying to seek and to save people. Do not ever, ever get stuck on word studies. Do not ever hang your hat on words, single words. Don't ever do that thing. It's very, very dangerous. Anybody going to argue that these people have the hearing that Christ just talked about? No. They heard something but they didn't, quote, hear it. They may have even, in the next two categories, believed something, but they didn't have godly belief. They had it for a time, and then, just like we see in the churches with apostates, 
So first category, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, now what does that mean? In a similar way, this is category two. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with, wor- with joy. Up here on the board, I want to show you something. I don't know anyone who thinks category number one is a believer, not a single soul that I've ever met. But what does this say? In a similar way, Jesus implied that this second class of people fall into the same category as the first, namely unconverted unbelievers, even though for a time they believed for a while as Luke described it. Not all believing is the same, my friends. This is what I'm trying to teach you. This is what is actually in Scripture. People believe in stuff all the time, but God only gives faith to the humble. And when He gives you saving faith, you persist. You persist. That's what Scripture says, unless Jesus Christ is a blatant liar. Honestly, you would have to call Jesus Christ a all-out, flat-out, blatant liar. Because he just said it. If you keep my word, then you're my true disciple. In a similar way, that ties the second category directly to the first. Jesus implies that the second class of people fall into the same category as the first, namely unconverted unbelievers. Ultimately, Mark writes the same conclusion that all three writers wrote about, which is the very thoughts of Jesus Christ himself when he spoke this one parable, the parable of parables. Look at verse 17. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only what? Temporary. Some of us leave, some people leave the church because some because they were never of us. But they were in the church and they professed faith and they professed to believe and they believed in Jesus somehow. Yeah. And then they left and now they're denouncing him. That is completely inconsistent with scripture. And now people nowadays, especially in the last 150 years or so, have a huge problem with that. But I'm telling you right now, folks, I've done the homework. That is a new doctrine. That whole thing is brand new. Like I said, All the old guys before this last couple of hundred years were fighting tooth and nail, just like I am right now, because they saw what was coming. Don't believe me? Ask me for it. I will give you their words. I will give you their words. Mark 4.17 And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. That, my friends, is an indicator of no persistence. No persistence. It's in a similar way as the first one. Just, they lasted a little longer. I mean, how often have we seen people, even in this church, they come, you know, some come and they they run out, right? They're like, oh, no way, right? Then another another group type of people, they come and they stay for a month. I'm like, ah, oh, this is good. Maybe they'll hang around. You know, then they're gone. Why? Rocky soil. As soon as something comes from without, they're gone. Then some people stay six months, maybe even a year. And then the world comes around, chokes them out, and they're gone. And then there's all of you. <laughs> right? Where you persist You persist, even in the face of this mug, who I know God says, (laughs) I know he irritates you, but too bad. You're going to persist. You're going to persist despite the anger you feel sometimes when you come to church, the indignation you feel from your flesh. How dare he say those things? It's not even me, right? This is his lesson. How dare that comes from the pulpit? That's my kid you're talking about. Good. Take a good, long, close, hard look at your kid. How dare you? I'm just teaching scripture. 
Jesus said, if you're a disciple of mine, you will persist. You're going to love me. And what, did, what does Paul say? He says, if you're in love with the world, you can't be in love with Christ. You can't serve two masters, you see. All right, back to where we see the word believe. And then I've got to close. In the parable of the sower, there's only one parable, of course. It's just written about in three different places in Scripture. Again, this is the second category in Jesus' parable. Look at verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe pistauo for a while. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which, now he goes to the third category, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. They don't bear any fruit at all. He then turns his parable to those who actually do possess godly belief in him and therefore a godly faith. And by the way, maturity means complete. Complete faith would mean complete fruit. Not something that looks a lot like it. Not something that looks like Jesus. Remember when I taught you Alos? Another or a different Jesus? Looks a lot like him, but he's not the actual Jesus. You believe in something that looks a lot like the true Jesus, but it's not complete. Therefore, it's not matured. Therefore, when it comes time to persist and bear godly fruit, it's immature. It looks a lot like it, but it's actually not complete. He then turns his parable to those who do actually possess godly belief in him and therefore a godly faith. And as we began at the start of class, when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees up here on the board, what the Pharisees didn't comprehend was that Abraham believed in Jesus Christ and therefore he did good deeds as fruit of God-given faith. As does every true believer. They persist. They bear fruit. Otherwise, God's a liar. This is where the so-called doctrine of persistence is coined and it's a good doctrine. What Scripture tells us is that if a person has true faith as a result of godly belief, in Jesus Christ, they will bear evidence of that result. 30, 60, 100-fold. In other words, they will persist in doing good. In fact, Jesus states in his parable here that those who are saved will bear good fruit. Let's look at verse 15. I've got to pick a spot here. But the seed in the good soil. Now look at what happens. This is the distinction. One of the good things about coming to a difficult passage is you get another angle from Scripture into the heart of Jesus. What did he say that the other ones didn't say when they accounted for this parable? Look at it. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with what? Perseverance. Perseverance. What do you see? What's the distinction between this category and the rest? The other ones did not persist. The one who bears fruit in a godly way does persist. I know that doesn't sound warm and fuzzy, folks, to some of you. I know it doesn't. Because maybe you know and love people that have not persisted, who do not persevere. But yet they claim they claim to be saved. Only God knows. But I know what theology says. I know what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, theology proper says, that if you're saved, you will bear fruit and you will persevere. That's what Scripture says. That's what Jesus was trying to say to all these people. You're going to come across all these kinds of people and they're going to be, some of them are just going to be like, no, thank you. Some will be like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Let's do it. They do, you know, do the thing for a little bit. And they're like, yeah, I, I, I believe. And then they're gone. And in other ones, they last a little longer. I'll leave you with this. 
You either believe that God's grace is perfect, like James said, I believe, every perfect gift is from heaven, and perfect gifts don't fail, or you don't. If he gives you saving faith, if he changes you, if you're given a renewed heart, if you're born again, if you're a totally new creature that can only desire to do what's pleasing to God, if you truly have that and you understand the grace of God, then you know undeniably that that same grace will produce good fruit in you. You either believe in the grace of God, my friends, or you don't. That's all I'll say. Amen. Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.